From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A bipartisan infrastructure deal cleared the Senate. It would fund things like broadband and electric vehicle charging stations, along with more traditional infrastructure like roads and bridges. Then it's a big year for wild mushrooms in Colorado, and foragers can brag about their hauls at the Telluride Mushroom Festival next week. Just don't ask them to reveal their mushroom spots. And sport climbing made its debut at the Tokyo Olympics. While its popularity is increasing at an elite level, there's also a growing movement to make climbing more inclusive. The story behind a new sport climbing route in Staunton State Park, southwest of Denver. For me, it was personally really amazing to climb a route that was set by two women of color. And I'm hoping that our communities continue to carve and create spaces. A lot of Evergreen members don't know their membership has expired. It's easy to keep your Evergreen membership current by using your checking account. Learn more at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters with CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The Senate passed a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. It covers traditional infrastructure like roads and bridges, but there's also a nod to the changing times. It includes money for broadband and the creation for a nationwide electric vehicle charging network. Passage of the bill in the Senate also paves the way for work to begin on President Biden's more ambitious agenda. Here to talk about all of this with us is CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim. Hi. Hi, Avery. First off, let's talk about this infrastructure bill. What are some of the priorities Colorado lawmakers are pushing for? Well, all right. Yes, as you said, the traditional infrastructure. Now, bear with me. There are a lot of numbers coming up. There is $110 billion for roads, bridges, and major projects. Now, the White House says, based on the funding formula, Colorado could get about $3.7 billion in highway funds and $225 million for bridge repair and replacement. There's $39 billion for public transportation. Now, here, the state would look at getting about $917 million over the next five years. And there's also funding for ports and passenger and freight rail. You've talked about some of the traditional. What, in some of your opinion, is the non-traditional infrastructure that's covered in this bill? Well, broadband. There is $65 billion to expand broadband, including a minimum of $100 million for Colorado. There is billions for water infrastructure, clean water, and drought resiliency, including $1 billion for rural water projects across the country. There's more than $5.5 billion for wildfire management. Senator Bennett, during the amendment process, actually got one of his included, and that's the Joint Chiefs Landscape Restoration Project, which will help restore forests and grasslands, reduce wildfire risk, and protect water supplies. Now, Bennett has been talking a lot about how the landscape, the forests, are an important part of Colorado's infrastructure, the natural infrastructure. And you see some of that in the bill. And of course, clean energy. This bill sets up, as you mentioned, the national network of electric vehicle chargers across the country, and the state could get about $57 million to support that expansion in Colorado. So there's a lot in there. This bill is almost 3,000 pages. But there are some Colorado-specific projects supported in it, although perhaps not as many as Colorado lawmakers want. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Members of the delegation pushed for some very Colorado-centric issues, getting RTD's deposit back from a Department of Transportation loan for 
for Denver's Union Station, support for the Transportation Technology Center in Pueblo, funding to build a U.S. Geological Survey research facility at the Colorado School of Mines. But what's not included are member-designated projects, what's, what used to be known as earmarks that Colorado's House Democrats had in their version of the surface transportation bill that passed that chamber. Now, this it was included in... It, the Senate version was included in, of course, this bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now, there were over a dozen proje- uh, projects ranging from the 16th Street Mall reconstruction in Denver to repairs and upgrades of the Eisenhower-Johnson Memorial Tunnel that are no longer in the bill. So that's it? These projects, they're not getting funded? Well, that's not clear yet. Once the Senate passes this bill, which was negotiated between the White House and a bipartisan group of senators, it heads to the House. Now, what happens there is the big question. Will the House change it? That could, if they if they do make changes, it could upset the balance created in the Senate. So if I had to guess, I don't see the House making like large, substantial changes, um, and especially anything that increases the price tag. Now, the other big question is when the House takes up the measure. The August recess has started for the House, but leaders there told members they'll likely be called back to deal with infrastructure and budget reconciliation. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been adamant that her chamber will take up those issues at the same time. Before we get to that, how are Colorado's Republican Congress members reacting to the infrastructure plan? (laughs) Well, based on their social media, I'd say they're not supportive. Um, Republican Ken Buck is a fiscal conservative, the only member of the delegation not to vote for any of the coronavirus relief packages because of the cost. He's highlighted the cost here, and the Congressional Budget Office projects it will add over $250 billion to the deficit over 10 years. Um, Colorado's newest congresswoman, Lauren Boebert, keeps referring it to um, the Green New Deal light. I think that's a little ironic. Ironic because progressives in the House actually don't think that this infrastructure bill does enough to tackle climate change. Right. This is where reconciliation comes into play. That's the budget process where Democrats hope to pass much of Biden's agenda when it comes to climate change, as well as education, health care, child care, right? Democrats, Mm -hmm. Senate Democrats, they laid out a framework for that on Monday. Right. This is a blueprint that bolsters the social safety net and would increase the size and scope of government. You know, includes universal pre-K, tuition-free community college, expanding Medicare to cover vision dental and hearing, um, reduces the cost of prescription drugs, provides a pathway to citizenship for some immigrants, sets up a civilian climate conservation corps, and makes investments in a number of climate and clean energy provisions. And they're proposing to pay for it by increasing taxes on large corporations and the wealthy. You're going to be hearing a lot from that from Democrats about why this investment is needed now, and a lot from Republicans about why it is not. And that framework that they laid out is $3.5 trillion. We've already gotten a taste of this, what they're, we're talking about in the Senate. GOP minority leader Mitch McConnell has described this as Democrats' reckless taxing and spending. Right. You're going to hear this from a lot of Republicans uh, in, the, in the next couple of months. Look, the government has spent a lot of money over the course of this pandemic. I don't think anyone is expecting any Republican support for this reconciliation bill. It's whether Democrats can stick together in the evenly divided Senate. That means Chuck Schumer will need all 50 of his senators. And there are some moderates who are questioning the overall price tag. A couple of weeks ago, Arizona's Kristen's, um, Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, who supports the reconciliation process, was not keen on the current price tag, the current amount. So what can we expect next? <laughs> a lot of debate and a lot of waiting in the Senate. There's going to be another so-called voterama to pass this budget resolution that's going to happen right after this vote, um, uh, the infrastructure vote. And that's where senators can offer up any number of amendments. And I expect this to be a very long voterama. Republicans know they can't stop the process, especially if Democrats stick together. So they're doing the only thing they can, which is slowing it down as much as possible. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim. Caitlin, thank you. Thank you, Avery.
It's a big year for wild mushrooms in Colorado and beyond, and foragers can discuss their unusually large hauls at the Telluride Mushroom Festival next week. The event has drawn fungi experts and enthusiasts enthusiasts since the 1980s. There are workshops on mushroom identification, food and medicine, and even how fun, fungi can help restore forests ravaged by fi- wildfires. Britt Bunyard is a professional mycologist and the executive director of the Telluride Mushroom Festival. Welcome, Britt. Hi, thanks for having me. Will we say it's been a big year for wild mushrooms here in Colorado and around the country? What does that look like? A big year for mushrooms. That means in the case of Colorado, it sounds like people, I'm in the Midwest right now. It sounds like people going out of doors are seeing mushrooms pretty much everywhere where in a typical year they maybe don't see any mushrooms. And why are there so many? What kinds of mushrooms are people seeing? Um, well, they're certainly seeing lots of choice edible mushrooms like the the local King Bolites out there because everybody's posting and bragging about it on on social media. Uh, what's the reasons? Um, you know, no one's really ever certain about fungi. They're so enigmatic. But um, the rains began in Colorado extra, extra early this year. And in the mountains haven't really let up. They've been getting nice amounts every single day, just about since they started in July. But, you know, it also has something to do with what goes on during the winter. And, you know, snow packs have been much reduced over the past several years, which has stressed the trees and the trees are tied to the mushrooms. I mean, you know, quite literally, the, a lot of the mushrooms are symbiotic partners that grow from the roots of the trees. So if the trees are having a struggle, then the mushrooms are kind of off as well, even if there's a, a rainy summer. So if it was a particularly good winter with lots of precipitation on the ground in the mountains, then uh, we have the precipitation this summer. That's going to mean the trees are extra happy and and the, the mushrooms manifest that as well, you know, by, by popping up all over the place. When you say there are lots of king bolites in Colorado, people also might know them by another name. Those are also porcini, right? Yes. So, yeah, the yeah, king bolites actually go by a lot of different names. So Italians call them porcini, which is, you know, the Italian word plural. A, a single one is a porcino, uh, which basically means little pig. because They're kind of short and stocky and fat. Um, French call them seps and uh, Eastern Europeans call them Billy Greaves, and we call them King Belites, and they have all manner of other names. When it, if it's a mushroom that's super popular, edible, everybody down through history has known about it and given it a local name. <laughs> but the vast, the vast majority of mushrooms, though, you know, don't really have any bearing on people, and they're, and people aren't interested. In, and oftentimes, they don't have any common names whatsoever. You know, so just things that that people really prize. They they seem to have a lot of names for them. So the more the more names, maybe the more tasty they are. Obviously, some of these mushrooms yes. they are poisonous, so people shouldn't just run out and start picking mushrooms willy nilly. How can people learn to forage safely? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, a lot of people hearing this presentation or seeing talk on Facebook or whatever get excited and it's like, wow, this is really expensive gourmet food that's free out there. I want to get in on this. And so they go out in the woods and see mushrooms everywhere. And they're like, oh, okay, so I don't know anything. But I'll, on the way to the forest, I'll stop by the bookstore and get a guidebook to mushrooms. And then you get to the woods and you're flipping through the pages. And wow, there's a lot of things that look like this mushroom on this page. And 
these are white mushrooms. And in fact, half the mushrooms in the book are white. And so they often end up getting even more frustrated with this information they're holding in their hand. So if you're a beginner, you know, it's best to probably pick up a beginner's book, which doesn't have nearly so many things, but it'll sort of show you how to know different groups of mushrooms by their shape and certain other features. But at the same time, the best way to learn mushrooms, whether you're into looking for edible mushrooms or photography or whatever, you know, a lot of people aren't necessarily just after edible mushrooms, but the best way is to join a club, you know, with experts in the club. So in Colorado, for example, there's several mycological societies. There's the Colorado Mycological Society based in Denver, and there's the Pikes Peak Mycological Society based in Colorado Springs as as two examples. But anyways, if you go in the woods with experts, they'll show you, you know, you can hold in your hand mushrooms that seemingly look pretty similar, but they'll show you how to know what they are based on some other things about them. Uh, the a smell coming from them or the habitat they're in, etc. There's a lot of things that make up a sort of a list of characters that you can use to figure out what your mushroom is. And, and the same goes for plants, insects, everything. There's uh, scientists use keys to key them out based on all sorts of different characteristics, which not all of them are on the organism themselves. Some of them have to do with the time of year or the habitat or, or region, etc. So these really fine distinctions to know what's safe. What about mushroom foraging etiquette? Give us some basics there. Oh, yeah. Mushroom foraging etiquette. That's very good. Oh, you know, actually, um, just one quick mention about the safety or non-safety. You know, there's tens of thousands of species of mushrooms in North America. And if you went out and picked every single mushroom you found in a day, it's pretty unlikely you would poison yourself and be harmed. It's also about as likely that you'd find something edible and good for, for the table, which means there's a few handfuls of really tasty choice mushrooms that the experts know about, know how to find. And there's maybe a handful of, of absolutely dangerous mushrooms. So while it's unlikely that you would harm yourself, uh, I should point out that every year people do die from eating poisonous mushrooms. So it's not impossible, you know, and there, there is a chance. So you really shouldn't take it too lightly. But anyways, um, as far as etiquette goes, Uh, Right now, it's easy to get kind of overwhelmed and kind of caught up in the moment and everyone hits the the forest looking for mushrooms. There's a number of things to keep in mind. First of all, be mindful of if if there's private property involved. I mean, you can't just go onto private property to hunt anything, mammals, birds, or mushrooms, because, you know, maybe people don't want you trespassing. If you do get permission to use someone's private property, then be a good steward and close gates behind you, etc., The same goes for in public land. Don't leave trash around and don't trample things. And don't just, you know, uh, pick everything you see. Leave stuff for other people. And again, most of the mushrooms you see are not edibles anyway. So there's really no reason to pick every single mushroom and bring it home and then take these pictures of piles of mushrooms that are all dirty on your table and ask people, what are they? You know, kind of ruins the future experience for others. If you are picking edible mushrooms, then you know, take a reasonable amount for yourself and leave some for some other people. There's really no uh, danger of picking every mushroom and causing them to go extinct because frankly, the fungus is still underground and will still be there next year. The fruit body that you're collecting is only for reproduction and produces spores, but still it's pretty senseless just to take every mushroom from the forest that you see because then the next person along doesn't get to enjoy them. And, you know, you you wouldn't want them to grab every wildflower or 
or really anything else just because they could. I mean, that's not being a very good steward. So if you're with other people in a group, you know, and they come upon a patch of mushrooms, don't run in front of them and now start grabbing something that they found, you know, maybe they'll invite you over to pick. But <laughs> there's a lot of sort of common sense things that people yeah. often don't think about. But if you're in a mushroom club and you go out with them, you know, you'll see people hopefully acting pretty responsible in the forest in, in all ways, picking as, as well as leaving uh, no trace, really, they can of, help of you being there. Learn the skills and the etiquette. You've been hunting mushrooms since you were a kid. Your family foraged for morels together in Ohio. How do you think attitudes towards foraging for mushrooms have changed since then? Um, well, I, in, some, in some ways, they haven't really changed a whole lot. A lot of people go out looking for wild mushrooms uh, for the table and consider it to be, you know, food and they're wanting to pick all that they can find. It's just that now there's a lot more people in North America wild mushrooming. It's gotten quite popular of late. Um, up until the last couple of decades, not really a whole lot of North Americans went mushroom hunting compared to, say, Asians and Europeans, where they've really... Uh, been very active collecting wild mushrooms for decades and centuries. Um, uh, most of the people who immigrated to North America, somewhere along the way, lost interest in foraging for really anything and even became quite fearful of mushrooms, much like a lot of people in you know the British Isles up until recently. So it's kind of hard to explain uh, and, and figure out the reasons. But uh, more recently, just last couple of decades, and especially just the last few years, as a result of a number of different books and other things, people have really gotten into foraging for a lot of stuff and mushrooms included. So there's definitely a lot more people in the woods uh, picking mushrooms now. So again, with more pressure on the habitat, you know, you have to be mindful of that and be a good steward. But at the same time, there's still, you know, lots and lots of vast expanses of forest, especially in Colorado. So you know, if you run into an area where everybody's picked, don't despair. Just go farther into the woods. You'll find lots of mushrooms. That's that's not a problem. You know, you mentioned habitat and the changing habitat. Mushrooms are part of the landscape, and the Western landscape has been increasingly and severely altered by climate change. How do you see the relationship between fungi, fungi and changing climate? Yeah, this is something that people are really starting to look at right now, along with uh, other organisms, with the with the with the planet warming up and, you know, we could discuss the reasons for that. It's been happening for a very long time, but it's uh, absolutely warming up and it's causing uh, flowering times, as one example, to begin earlier and earlier. This has been documented both in North America and Europe and pretty much everywhere in the nor Northern Hemisphere. And likewise, uh, in addition to flowering times getting earlier, a lot of flowers are having more than one season now in a single year. And mushrooms are doing the same thing. We're seeing mushroom fruiting times for a given species earlier and earlier each year. And some species now are having two seasons of fruiting, which, you know, is really hard to explain other than that the winters are getting shorter and things are getting warmer. We also see a number of different mushrooms moving further and further north in North America, things that maybe only were known from the Gulf Coast now are found in the Midwest. But then uh, also we're having much drier conditions leading to fire, and that's uh, obviously having an impact on the forest, and the fungi that are tied to the forest are being impacted. And uh, just recently, uh, people have really started looking at some of the mushrooms that come up after fire 
you don't really think of fungi kind of being tied to fire, but believe it or not, there are some. And what's been recently found is a number of these mushrooms like burn morels and certain other uh, fungi that appear in these vast burned over areas, they, they appear right after a fire or maybe the next year after a fire. Uh, inexplicably, and, and a lot of people thought, well, you know, where are these spores coming from? Are they blowing in from somewhere? But we we don't see these mushrooms really anywhere any other time of the year. So what's going on? Well, I'm looking really closely into the plants that have evolved in these habitats with fire. They find a lot of these fungi aren't actually free living in the environment. They live inside those plants as oh, an endophyte. So, yeah. So as the after the plant burns, the plants that are adapted to fire, their roots are deep in the soil and they can withstand the the heat of the fire and then the plant uh, will spring back, you know, later on. So it's not well, the fungus moved in afterward. Yeah. I wanna... So the fungus is in the plant too and, and the fungus then starts fruiting after the fire. It, it emerges as well. I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you about the Telluride Mushroom Festival. You're in northern Illinois now, but you have these deep Colorado connections. You've been coming here for many years for this festival and now you're the festival director. That starts next week. Briefly, are there any lectures or workshops you're particularly excited about this year? It's the 41st year. 41st year for the Telluride Mushroom Festival. Yeah, um, there, there's there's numerous presentations that I'm really excited to see, especially ones by um, experts that I've not seen give a presentation before. One in particular, since I was just talking about fires, one of our keynote presentations this year will be by a scientist at Colorado State University, uh, Camille. She works with uh, forest restoration after fires, Camille uh, Raman Stevens. And she will be giving a keynote presentation at the festival on what's going on with these fungi and plants and how to help restore forests uh, using fungi, both the fungi that are fire adapted, but also other fungi as well, fungi that uh, can decompose burned uh, tree matter and, and stuff like this. And there's a lot of mycorrhizal fungi that are symbiotic partners with the roots of trees. So getting forests reestablished is very important. And to get those trees established, it's crucial to, to pair them up with their fungus because they're pretty much the puppet master of the little seedling trees that you're trying to get established. So uh, that talk in particular, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing. That's so much hope. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing all this. Sure. My pleasure. Britt Bunyard is the executive director of the Telluride Mushroom Festival. He's a professional mycologist, founder of Fungi Magazine, and author of several books, including the forthcoming title from Princeton University Press, The Secret Life of Fungi. The Telluride Mushroom Festival starts August 18th. After the break, the story behind a new sport climbing route in Staunton State Park, southwest of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. Like, oh, my son, I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Hear Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
indoor sport climbing made its debut at the Olympics in Tokyo. While its popularity is increasing at an elite level, it's also a growing movement to make climbing more inclusive. Last fall, a group of climbers working on that effort mapped out and installed a new sport climbing route in Staunton State Park, southwest of Denver. Alan Primus is a seasoned route setter and volunteered for the park. He's been rock climbing since he was a kid. We spoke in November. My parents did some rock climbing when they were in their college outing clubs back in upstate New York. And they sent me to a climbing class when I was in high school. That would have been the early 70s. And I'd been in upstate New York climbing trees since I could climb. And rock climbing seemed pretty fun. So when I went off to college, I found an outing club with a guy who knew how to use the formal rock climbing technologies of the day and I've been climbing ever since. When he moved to Colorado, he started setting routes somewhat out of necessity. Back in the 90s, I was looking around and trying to find some easy routes for beginners. And at that time, I was climbing a lot in the South Platte area. And there weren't very many easy routes out there. There were some really hard routes, and there were some easy routes that were horrifically protected. Um, There was one climb that's was in the, the guidebook that I had at a grade of 5.5, five, which is a beginner-level climbing, that essentially was a free solo to a bolted anchor, which is death if you fall. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. So I got myself a drill, and I went out and established a couple of easy climbs. For Primus, it's not just about easy climbs. He also wants to see hard climbs made safer for climbers of every body type. Not just the stereotypical lanky guy who can reach a long way for the next anchor. He says one of the most important qualities of an inclusive route is... Making sure the bolts are within reach of the good stance so that you can reach out and stay safe. The other is keeping the bolts one above the other relatively close together. I was out working on a potential part of a new route, and there were a couple of other women nearby who were climbing a route that's above my grade. It was 11D or maybe 12A. I can't climb that hard, but the first woman to give it a try got through the hard part, and then there was a 12-foot gap between bolts, and she looked at that gap and said, I'm not doing that. Primus points out it's not surprising that sport climbing routes are geared toward white men's bodies since it's mostly white men who are setting the routes. Most of the outdoor developers that I know, and it's not that I know that many, but in general, I don't know of many women developing routes, nor any women of color. And I thought, you know, maybe I could try and do something. He saw a video a New York climber put together about an indoor route setting clinic for women and non-binary climbers. I thought, that's kind of close to what I'm looking for, but I'm interested in things outside. And so I just kind of out of the blue center of the email saying, how can I, as an old white guy, develop routes that might be better for women? And that was kind of the beginning of our conversation. If you don't mind me reading you the subject line, it was very charming to some degree and also really funny. I get this email sometime in, on July 20th. It says, Female-friendlier outdoor routes, question mark. Alan Primus writes, Hi, I wonder how I, in parentheses, as an old white male, can make new outdoor routes more female-friendly. And then he talks about like how he's been developing routes outside that are particularly beginner-friendly. And I was like, huh, this is, this is something I had never considered. But, you know, try me. That's Lam Toyavo, the climber from New York. 
I'm a reporter by day looking at inequality and um, looking at it through the lens of data. And by night, I like to scale walls and rocks and sometimes trees when there's no wall. And I organize a group called Try Hard Crew, which organizes meetups for women and gender non-conforming folks in New York City and is also pushing for more women and non-binary folks in the realm of route sitting with a particular focus on women of color. She came to Colorado to create a route with Primus. Her friend and fellow climber Tiffany Blunt flew down too. I basically, I live in the New York, New Jersey area. I'm really close to New York. And um, by day, I'm the director of media education for a nonprofit organization based in Manhattan. By all other hours of the day, I'm climbing. Um, I am a local leader for Brown Girls Climb New York. I run an organization called Black Girls Boulder, and I climb a lot. After their trip, I caught up with them by video call to talk about route setting outdoors, as well as their work to make more welcoming and diverse spaces in the sport. Colorado climber Montserrat Alvarez Matajuela joined us as well. I currently live in so-called Boulder, Colorado, the ancestral lands of the Arapaho Nation. And by day, I work at an educational nonprofit in the outdoor industry, by all the other hours of the day <laughs> to follow Tiffany's uh, layout. I am part of the founding crew of Brown Girls Climb. Currently serve the role as the outdoor program director. I'm a volunteer with Latino Outdoors. I'm also a community organizer and yeah, also like to climb and spend time outside and dance and sing and eat food. So that's what I do. I want to know how you all got into climbing. Tiffany, what was your first climbing experience? The first time I climbed ever, I was on vacation looking for things to do in Colorado Springs. And of course, the number one thing apparently to do in Colorado is rock climbing, <laughs> which I had honestly never heard of. I have no previous memory of climbing prior to that. And it just looked like something that I would do because I like anything that's physical and outdoorsy. And so I hired a guy to take me to Garden of the Gods. And it wasn't supposed to be one-on-one, -on -one, but no one else showed up. And so it was basically a one-on-one -on -one climbing guiding experience. And it was the best thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> From that point on, I was hooked. Although I came back to New York and went climbing in a gym and it wasn't really the same experience until I went back um, or went to a climbing festival in Alabama that made me fall in love again. So since then, which was two years ago, I've been pretty much on the wall constantly, outdoor or indoor. <laughs> My experience was very boring. Um, a friend of mine actually was just like, oh, I think you seem like the kind of person who would like to rock climb. And I was like, huh. I have never heard of this thing. I don't know what this is. I've never been on a camping trip. And I was that was like five years ago or something like that. And I ended up going with her. And I don't think I've ever seen her back in the gym, but I ended up just getting very into indoor rock climbing and putting on my headphones and doing it as a de-stressing kind of thing. But yeah, I remember the first time I went, I was like, oh, this is a thing I have been doing for years, just going up some trees instead of like going up a wall. And so... Um, I really got into it. I think I got a pair of shoes within like two weeks of starting to climb. And it was like this beautiful meditative thing that I could do after work and just kind of ignore the world. 
Nice. Monsara, why don't you go next? Yeah, my first time doing like a technical rock climb was in college. I've been working in the outdoor industry for seven years as an outdoor educator and instructor. And it was part of my trip leader training at my college program. And this was back in North Carolina where I grew up. And I was pretty turned off from the climbing scene. And so I didn't really climb during the first two years of my career. And it wasn't until I moved to Colorado that, like Tiffany, I got hooked to climbing again and have just been doing my thing on the rocks for a while now. Um, And, you know, since then I've been figuring out how to reshape people's first experiences uh, being outside or indoors. There's a lot to unpack there. What happened that initially turned you off of climbing? Um, I don't think it was like a what happened. It's more like all of the things that happened. <laughs> um, it's just, it was the space, the the environment, the folks who frequent those spaces. When I started working in the outdoors, I was most of the time the only person of color and the only woman in my trip leader settings. And oftentimes the students who were coming to our programs also didn't reflect my identities or just any diversity. Uh, It was pretty homogenous spaces, very white spaces, very like men dominated spaces. And so I honestly didn't really see myself as being part of that community for a really long time. And Lam and Tiffany, did you see yourself represented at the gym or on the rock wall when y'all started climbing? (laughs) No way. (laughs) That's I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's part of the reason why I didn't go back. I mean, I went to a climbing gym in Queens and I, yeah, like I said, it wasn't what I thought it was. And when I did eventually join a gym because one opened up a block from my job and that's the only reason I joined it, I was always the only black girl in there. I mean, every now and again, you get other women in there, but there was definitely nobody who looked like me. So I was actually about to cancel my membership until I went to Color the Crag. Like I started my membership in August, went to Color the Crag in October. And then I kept my membership because after Color the Crag, I was like, okay, there is a community out there. There's people. I just have to dig a little deeper. But I do climbing competitions and it's usually you can count on one hand how many black girls are climbing. So for me, it's it's very alienating. But I've kind of fought past it. Climbing outside can be a little bit nerve wracking for me, but I love and prefer being outdoors. But that is a very, very tight space. So, yeah. I think, I mean, to echo all of these experiences, I don't think I felt particularly comfortable in the gym, in the environment. But the thing that I always would do is put on my headphones and be like, I really like this thing. Let me do it and pull through and push through and kind of ignore the folks around me. I think climbing gyms can oftentimes kind of like be left to what I like to sometimes refer to the tyranny of the loudest and sometimes the loudest are the people who are the boldest who feel like it has to be a replica of a high school setting where the strongest and meanest dudes oftentimes and oftentimes a very homogenous type of granola white dude who comes in and kind of poisons the atmosphere. Like that seemed to be a thing that 
I felt very strongly when I came into the climbing gym. But um, for me, it was about I'm a developer who does data journalism and have always been surrounded and been the only one in my newsroom doing what I do, being the only woman of color in the fields that I'm at, like knowing that as my general modus operandi made it easier for me to just concentrate on the thing that I love doing and like really cut out all of the other noises around that. But yeah, it took me quite some time to find a community. And I think the kind of work that Brown Girls Climb does, the kind of work that Color the Craig, one of the festivals that we attended, do, that really helped actually establish community in something um, and climb for community rather than climb for singular individual achievement. You've told us how alienating it felt when you didn't see women, especially women of color, at the rock climbing gym or climbing outdoors. Lum, how does that homogeneity in the climbing community translate to the routes themselves being exclusive? In 2017, I remember seeing a panel about climbing, and one of the women on the panel was like, most of these routes are set in the gym and also outside by really tall white men. And that manifests itself in so many ways in the outdoors um, in particular. There are really horrible racist names that have been put to these routes. They are oftentimes set by people who have a very different physique than, let's say, shorter women like myself. Like I'm five foot two, I'm a little short and stout. And for me, getting to the first clip to clip in, which is an anchor metal device where you clip in to find some in between climbing from one part of the route to another. But like basically a lot of the ways in which these routes have been developed never really took into consideration the kind of needs that someone like me, a short five foot two woman of color would have. And that translates into coming to the crag and seeing names that affront like every part of your personality all the way to like not being able to physically do it. And I think in many ways that translates into what feels like a very unwelcoming environment. And from what I've heard from a lot of women of color in particular and non-binary folks of color is that that is a really high barrier of entry for people who are just starting the sport. And Monserrat, I know you also climb a lot outdoors. Is that something that you also experience in Colorado? You know, there's so much more in the culture of exclusivity that exists in the climbing world. And one of those big things is just like the names of roots. They're really insensitive. They're homophobic, they're transphobic, they're racist, they're sexist. Like, and the ones to be putting up these roots or have access to those resources or have access to the knowledge, they don't reflect the diverse community that we hope to bring into the climbing community and spaces. And I think there's a really broad response right now happening where some folks understand and they get it. And some of them just don't and they don't care. I think it's really easy when you're not the one being impacted by those things to tell someone to just suck it up and go climb, especially as women of color. We don't leave our identities at the crag or at the trailhead or at the parking lot or at the parking lot at the gym. We need to be able to talk about these things in order to be able to bring in more communities into these spaces because how they've been historically created is with us not in mind. And for people who aren't familiar, these route names, they end up in guidebooks, they end up online and on apps and all the different ways that people identify the routes. Tell me about how you've each carved out space for yourselves and found community with other women and especially women of color and gender nonconforming folks. Well, for me, it was my introduction to Brown Girls Climb because 
that was the only time where I felt like, okay, I can actually do this. This is for me. There's other people doing this that look like me and I have a safe space to go (laughs) because from there I became a leader. And then the fact that I discovered climbing at the age of 35, that like made me sad. I was like, I wish I knew about climbing in college at the least, if not when I was a kid. And so I just wanted to create a space to set girls up who maybe would never know anything about this sport, but would excel at it and sort of cultivate that space. Um, One of the things that I think was really helpful, climbing a gym that was all set by women and then also going to Color the Crag, both of those spaces felt just very different from what I had experienced in the gym before. What we experienced um, at this climbing festival for people of color in many ways was that this is an alternate universe of how it could be when we are community-minded. Everywhere we climbed during that festival, people were like, oh yeah, this is how you pronounce my name. And oh, how do you pronounce your name? Like even little things in which people were just mindful of the particularities of each of our experiences was really, really beautiful. And so when we came back, similar to what Tiffany was doing is two other women of color, we started a group try hard crew which every month we would meet at a gym and I think you could see other people being like oh we should do that too sometime where we just come together and are giddy and try hard things together like later on we started doing route setting clinics where we had women and gender non-conforming folks join us to make routes in the gym and I think by just kind of like modeling a different experience we hopefully were able to get other people on board with that idea. That's a beautiful way of shaping community. Montserrat, you've helped found the national organization Brown Girls Climb. Tell me about the value you found in building that space. It was through the affinity spaces that I've been able to create, both with Brown Girls Climb, but also all these other amazing organizations that are out here doing work to create affinity spaces in Climbing, rafting, hiking, backpacking, snow sports, like you name it. There are organizations who are carving their own space in the outdoor industry and the outdoor spaces. You know, any time that I get to be in affinity spaces, whether it's women of color spaces or POC spaces or queer spaces, like those are all things that feel like such a healing part of my life. Because I work in the outdoor industry and I oftentimes don't see that as much as I would like to. And being able to facilitate those spaces for my communities feels like such a privilege. And if I can do that for the rest of my life, I would be happy. Yeah, those are such important spaces. Let's talk a little bit about the route setting. Lam, you made a series of videos about diversity and climbing, and one of them is about route setting indoors. And it caught the attention of Alan Primus, who's been setting routes outdoors for years now. Alan reached out to you. He said, how can I help? How did that culminate in you and Tiffany coming to Colorado to set up a route with Alan in Staunton Park? Basically, it's a combination of like me being incredibly stubborn about stuff and um, pulling poor Tiffany into this thing. <laughs> but uh, basically, um, I get this email sometime in, on July 20th. Um, so I, I emailed him back and I kind of was just thinking about how 
can this man be connected to a bunch of people? One of my closest friends said something very beautiful that I think very much speaks to that. You can't be what you don't see. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was like both connect him to local groups, but then also kind of like just say, look, we can do this. We, we can do this. This might seem insane to travel all the way to Colorado to drill holes into the side of the Rocky Mountains, but why not? So in the end, it took three months of planning. It started with Zoom calls. Tiffany and I would do planks at home, like trying to train because we're still half in quarantine and half trying to like figure out what, how we could safely climb, whether it's in Central Park or outside. And like, we just figured that if anything, we can prove the point that women of color can do this. Um, and maybe Tiffany, I would love for you to talk about the name that we are tentatively thinking about, because I think that also plays into that. So when Lam asked, it wasn't really a like if, it was like, all right, so when are we going? I had no idea what route development was. The part about climbing that I liked is the fact that I can sit here and work on this puzzle and not think about all of the stress that's going on, uh, which is why when COVID hit and a lot of the continued, I'll say racial injustices were unfolding because they were unfolding, whether they were on TV or not, it was difficult because that was my form of therapy and escapism from day-to-day life. I found the idea of of going and making a puzzle piece out of a really large wall on the side of a mountain to be the most incredible opportunity. (laughs) I can't tell you the amount of joy of finishing the route, of bolting that last hold. (laughs) So tell me about the new route and tell me about the name you're thinking about. Yeah, so it's the route is set on what we're calling the classroom boulder. It's an amazing slab route that just continues to go up and then eventually the climber disappears over this overhang. And then after that, it's a really, it's like walking the stairway to heaven. It's just like this nice little coast up the last portion of it. So we're thinking of naming it Patterson's Pitch. And this is named after uh, a woman, Mary Jane Patterson. Uh, Historically, she is considered One of, and I say one of because it's hard to go back in history and know who was exactly the first, but uh, she's considered one of the first Black women to uh, receive a bachelor's degree. I love that. Montserrat, you've climbed their route. What was your experience? Um, I was really, really excited to to climb this, this, this route. Like I told both of them, I was like, I'm not a sport climber, but I will climb this just because it was set by you all. It was like a really enjoyable experience for me as a non-sport climber. For me, it was personally really amazing to climb a route that was set by two women of color. Um, And I'm hoping that our communities continue to carve and create spaces. And, you know, for folks that have those resources, have that power, have those privileges, stepping to the side and giving up those resources and sharing of knowledge so that our folks can continue to develop their own roles. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Alan. I think that he's a very humble person. He's someone who does not fit like the climbing like norm or stereotype. And I see him as someone who is sort of recognizing the position that he is in and creating genuine relationships with community 
to bring in more diversity with whether it's a route setter or the climbers that are coming to this area. And I just wish that I can see that more in the climbing spaces, right? Like working collaboratively, but also accepting and taking leadership from folks who are not the dominant groups, you know, queer, trans, women, Black and Indigenous people of color. Oftentimes we don't work or respectfully consider and collaborate with the Indigenous peoples of the lands that we are trying to set roots on. I think that it is through forfeiting our power and just being good allies that we can continue to build a different space in the climbing world and beyond. You know what the biggest highlight for me was? I look at systems for work. I look at how systems like govern the lives of some of the most marginalized communities in the U.S. And for me, like changing a system is like the most thrilling thing in the world. (laughs) So one of the smallest things that we were able to do was that actually out of that discussion, at least two women of color are now working with Alan to build more routes outside. That's Lam Tuivo of New York. She and Tiffany Blunt, who's from New Jersey, were in Colorado last November. They learned to set a sport climbing route with Alan Primus in Staunton State Park. Montserrat Alvarez Matajuela is a Colorado climber and the outdoor program director for the national organization Brown Girls Climb. By the way, that new route is indeed named Patterson's Pitch. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. With special thanks to Megan Verlee, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.